Once again, I learned that non-scientists wanted to learn more about science. While I wanted to know about politics, he wanted to know about brains, about drug use, about computers, about what was being discovered about life. Little did I know then that over his lifetime I would be one of his contacts, his scouts for scientific knowledge. While I was enthralled with every tidbit he uttered about politics, he wanted conduits to scientific thinking, and I gave him these. Bill was naturally friendly and unflaggingly generous, though I believe he had no concept of the many implicit gifts he gave his friends. Most of my close friends are in science, which is to say that they reflexively try to dissect assumptions on scientific claims. Yet as a group they are not prone to applying those skills to social and political agendas, let alone doing it with wit. Bill challenged everything, but always with a grin and with humor. His was a disposition that made it hard for others to rattle his resolve. He always was on top of things with a big picture. Expressing that attitude about life served those who knew him in ways that I don't think he ever fully appreciated. It surely influenced how I dealt with my academic friends the rest of my life. I learned that holding a minority view can be fun, and that if it is done in good spirit, those around you can have fun as well. Overall, Bill was a risk-taker, yet prudent and mannered. He once told me he didn't like to meet people he admired because they invariably disappointed in person. Gregarious, yet private, Bill never disappointed. Soon after the lecture in Monrovia, I discovered that there was a bit of Saul Hurok in me. Footnote. Saul Hurok was a world-famous 20th-century American impresario who managed Arthur Rubinstein and Isaac Stern, among a fleet of other well-known actors and musicians. A couple of weeks after that evening's great success, we decided to go big time. Why not arrange a series of debates on the American Constitution? Why not put out a book? Why not have some fun? So I asked Bill if he would lead off such a series debating Steve Allen on the American presidency. He said, sure. Then I asked if he would write to Steve Allen since I didn't know him yet. Sure, he said, adding that Allen's wife, Jane Meadows, had grown up in his hometown. Bill wrote the letter. Steve said yes. And within a couple of weeks, I had arranged for two other debates. I had Robert Hutchins, former president of the University of Chicago, a post he attained at the age of 30, debating Bill's brother-in-law, L. Brent Bozell, another lawyer and ghostwriter for Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative, about the Supreme Court. Finally, I somehow had arranged for James McGregor Burns, one of JFK's biographers, to debate Wilmore Kendall, the maverick conservative political theorist who had been fired by Yale. Their topic was the Congress. I don't know what I was thinking. A few weeks later, I realized I'd signed contracts for auditoriums and speakers that totaled more than $10,000. The Graduate Committee for Political Education had $200 to its name. By the morning of the first debate, which was to be held at the huge Hollywood Palladium, only 200 people had purchased tickets, some of which had been peddled by my little sister at her junior high school. Steve had taped his TV show the night before with Bill as a guest. They had warmed up for their debate about JFK, but the show wouldn't air for two weeks and wouldn't aid in ticket sales. I was concerned and told Steve. Steve, very matter-of-factly, said, Don't worry, Mike, 3,000 people would show up to watch me play tiddlywinks. I wasn't convinced. On the way to the event, we had stopped by the house of my wife's friend, who was in the restaurant business. I had met my wife, Linda, through Sperry's student, Colwyn Trevarthen and his wife, who came from a long-time Pasadena family. Linda also had been raised in Pasadena. Her family knew the business community, and she was close to many of them. Linda's friend asked one question. How are you fixed for change? 
Not only was I not fixed for change, but it soon became clear I had no idea what I was doing. He intervened, grabbed his wife, went down to their restaurant, gathered up several hundred dollars of quarters and dollar bills, and helped man the ticket booths at the Palladium. As it turned out, 3,000 people bought tickets that night, and two of them were Mr. and Mrs. Groucho Marx. Dozens of other limousines and Rolls Royces pulled up for the big event to buy those tickets for $2.75. Backstage, Bill and his entourage waited in one room, and Steve and his supporters waited in another. Since it was to be a debate, there would be prepared opening statements, but following those, the participants were to think on their feet. Bill Buckley did this better than anyone, and in that sense it was an unfair match. But Steve had prepared as if for war. To guard against freezing up, he had prepared remarks for his rebuttal as well, just in case. Out front the crowd was boisterous. This was going to be the event of the century. Steve Allen, head of SANE, S-A-N-E, the movie community chapter of the National Anti-Nuclear Activist Group, and Hollywood's favorite liberal pitted against William F. Buckley, Jr., Americans' leading conservative who was ready to tell the Soviets that we would nuke them if they made a false move. They were going to march through JFK's foreign policy and examine it from Vietnam to Cuba to the Soviet Union. When the debaters took to the stage, the crowd rose to their feet and cheered them into battle. Homer Odom, a local news show host who had also helped me promote the show, took charge as moderator. I walked to the very back of the auditorium in a stunned state. What had I done? There were only two security guards. Luckily, the rest of the evening took care of itself. Here were two great showmen arguing their views. At one point, Buckley spotted Groucho Marx, who was seated in the front row. Sensing that the crowd needed a little jolt, he, without blinking, incorporated the opportunity into his rebuttal. He stared at Steve Allen and exclaimed, Let's face it, Steve, President Kennedy's foreign policy might as well have been ridden by the Marx brothers. Now, most folks hadn't noticed Groucho's presence. He stood up on cue, walked up on stage, strolled across to thunderous applause, raising and lowering his infamous eyebrows and smoking his cigar all the while. The blossoming Saul Herak and me lives on. Over the ensuing years, I am not sure I would have taken on my many professional projects of promoting ideas and debates if I hadn't had this experience under my belt. There is something very intoxicating about taking an empty space and then populating with vibrant events. Maybe it all helps to ward off ennui. While that turned out to be the only political foray of my life, the dozens upon dozens of scientific meetings I have organized surely grew out of this experience. If done properly, intimate discussions or public debates bring out what people are really thinking. At a minimum, it taught me how the translation of complex topics into the public dialogue worked. This was the rich and vibrant stew I was living in, when all of the science which makes up the core of this book was first initiated. Some of the influences came from family, some from the incomparable mystique of Caltech, some from the people of Caltech, some from the people of greater Los Angeles, and some from the incredible good luck of being given an opportunity to study the most fascinating humans on Earth. In the fifty years since the first studies on Case W.J., which I will describe along with many others, I have studied many neurologic patients with all kinds of illuminating conditions. Of all those patients, this book will focus on the six slit-brain patients who have changed how we think about how the brain carries out its work. These patients are extraordinary in every sense of the word, 
and were not only the center of my scientific life, but a big part of my personal life and the lives of the dozens of fellow scientists who studied them as well. While some have now died, others live on and remain very special people. They are the story and in many ways give the story its very structure. Even with their brains divided for medical reasons, they conquered life with singular purpose and will. How they did this reveals secrets about how those of us without the operation accomplish it as well. Chapter 2 Discovering a Mind Divided If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Isaac Newton MSG Fixate on the dot. WJ Do you mean the little piece of paper stuck on the screen? MSG Yes, that is a dot. Look right at it. WJ Okay. I make sure he is looking straight at the dot and flash him a picture of a simple object, a square, which is placed to the right of the dot for exactly 100 milliseconds. By being placed there, the image is directed to his left half-brain, his speaking brain. This is the test that I had designed that had not been given to the Acolytus series of patients. MSG. What did you see? WJ. A uh, box? MSG. Good, let's do it again. Fixate the dot. WJ, do you mean the little piece of tape? MSG, yes, I do. Now fixate. Again, I flash a picture of another square, but this time to the left of his fixated point, and this image is transmitted exclusively to his right brain, the half-brain that does not speak. Footnote. The location of the brain's speech center in the left hemisphere was discovered by the French physicians Marc Dax and Paul Broca in the 19th century. Because of the special surgery W.J. had undergone, his right brain, with its connecting fibers to the left hemisphere severed, could no longer communicate with his left brain. This was the telling moment. Heart pounding. Mouth dry, I asked. M.S.G. What did you see? W.J. Nothing. M.S.G. Nothing? You saw nothing? W.J. Nothing. My heart races. I begin to sweat. Have I just seen two brains, that is to say two minds working separately in one head? One could speak, one couldn't. Was that what was happening? W.J. Anything else you want me to do? M.S.G. Yes, just a minute. I quickly find some even more simple slides that project only single small circles onto the screen. Each slide projects one circle, but in different places on each trial. What would happen if he were just asked to point to anything he saw. MSG. Bill, just point to what stuff you see. WJ. On the screen. MSG. Yes, and use either hand that seems fit. WJ. Okay. MSG. Fixate the dot. A circle is flashed to the right of fixation, allowing his left brain to see it. His right hand rises from the table and points to where the circle has been on the screen. We do this for a number of trials where the flashed circle appears on one side of the screen or the other. It doesn't matter. When the circle is to the right of fixation, the right hand, controlled by the left hemisphere, points to it. When the circle is to the left of fixation, it is the left hand, controlled by the right hemisphere, that points to it. Footnote. 
The brain is a largely symmetrical organ, with the left side of the brain controlling the right side of the body, and the right side of the brain controlling the left side of the body. The activities of each side of the brain are normally coordinated by the great cerebral commissure, called the corpus callosum. One hand or the other will point to the correct place on the screen. That means that each hemisphere does see a circle when it is in the opposite visual field and each, separate from the other, could guide the arm, hand, it controlled, to make a response. Only the left hemisphere, however, can talk about it. I can barely contain myself, oh, the sweetness of discovery. Thus begins a line of research that twenty years later, almost to the day, will be awarded the Nobel Prize. Take any one time frame from life where many people are involved, and when they retell the story, all participants will have their own version of what went on. I have six children, and Christmas break is a time when the troops all arrive home. Listening to them reminisce about childhood, it is astounding how unique their recall is of the exact same events. The same is true for all of us in our professional lives. While the factual aspects of scientific studies were going on, what was occurring in the background story? Of course, there was more to that magic moment with W.J. than just the two of us. A Daring Doctor and His Willing Patient Bogan was the bright and persuasive young neurosurgeon who pushed along the idea of carrying out the human split-brain procedure. He was also responsible for finding the first case. I could explain how that came to be, but much better are his own words, recalling the patient and those early days. From the beginning, the revolutionary impact of Case W.J. is evident. I first met Bill Jenkins in the summer of 1960, when he was brought to the ER in Status Epilepticus. Footnote. Status Epilepticus is a life-threatening, persistent, generalized convulsive seizure and is a medical emergency. It is traditionally defined as a seizure that lasts longer than five minutes. I was the neurology resident then on call. Footnote. Neurosurgery residents spend time training in neurology as well. The heterogeneity as well as the intractability and severity of his multicentric seizure disorder became clearer to me over the next months. Both in the clinic and in the hospital, I witnessed psychomotor spells, sudden tonic falls, and unilateral jerking, as well as generalized convulsions. In late 1960, I wrote to Maitland Baldwin, then Chief of Neurosurgery at the NIH, National Institute of Health, in Bethesda, Maryland. A few months later, Bill was admitted to the NIH Epilepsy Service, where he spent six weeks. He was sent home in the spring of 1961, having been informed that there was no treatment, standard or innovative, available for his problem. Bill and his wife Fern were then told of Van Wanigan's results, mainly with partial sections of the cerebral commissures. I suggested that a complete section might help. Their enthusiasm encouraged me to approach Phil, my chief, because of his experience with the removal of colossal arteriovenous malformations. He suggested that we practice a half-dozen times in the morgue. By the end of the summer, during which I was again on the neurosurgery service, the procedure seemed reasonably in hand. My plea to Sperry was that this was going to be a unique opportunity to test a human with the knowledge from his cat and monkey experiments and that his direction of the research was essential. He pointed out that a student about to graduate from Dartmouth had spent the previous summer in the lab and would be eager to test a human. 
Mike Zanaga started his graduate study in September and was, as Sperry said, eager to test a human subject. He and I soon became friends and planned together experiments to be done before and after the surgery. There was some delay before the operation, during which Bill underwent testing in Sperry's laboratory. During this delay, we also had an opportunity to keep a reasonably complete record of Bill's many seizures. It was during this period of preoperative testing that Bill said, You know, even if it doesn't help my seizures, if you learn something, it will be more worthwhile than anything I've been able to do for years. He was operated on in February 1962. It seems to me in retrospect that, if there had been a research committee at our hospital, whose multi-member approval was required, the procedure would never have been done. At that time, a chief of service could make such a decision alone, which I expect was similar to the situation at the University of Rochester in the late 1930s. Science Then and Now Life was simple back in 1961, or so it seems now. It was a time when people went off to college, studied hard, went to graduate school, did a thesis, got a postdoctoral fellowship, then got an assistant professorship somewhere. They spent their life pursuing their intellectual interests. Today, the choices are not so clear-cut, and more graduating PhDs go into industry, outreach programs, startups, foreign research organizations, and more. Most of one's colleagues are from or have spent time abroad. All of this is fabulous, too, but different and more socially complex. In the early 1960s, some aspects of biology also appeared to be deceptively simple. Watson and Crick had made their breakthrough discovery about DNA and its role in heredity. By today's standards of molecular mechanisms, the model of how it worked was simple. Genes produced proteins, which then carried out bodily functions. Boom, 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 and you had a full mechanism. It became known as the central dogma. Information flowed in one direction, from DNA out to proteins that then instructed the body. With all that we know today, however, there is serious disagreement on how to even define what a gene is, let alone how many different interactions there are between molecules that are thought to be in some causal chain of action. To complicate matters even more, it is now known that information flows in both directions. What is getting built is, in turn, influencing how it is getting built. The molecular aspects of life reflect a complex system laced with feedback loops and multiple interactions. Nothing is linear and simple. Modern brain science started out being discussed in simple, linear terms. Neuron A went to neuron B, which then went to neuron C. Information was passed along a path and was somehow gradually transformed from sensory exposure into action, having been shaped by external reinforcements. Today, such a simple characterization of how the brain works would be risable. The interactions of the brain's circuitry are as complex as those of the molecules that make it up. Getting a hold on how it works is almost paralyzing in its difficulty. Good thing we didn't realize this at the time, or no one would have tackled the job. As I look back on those early days... It may have been good for human split-brain research to begin coming of age in the hands of the simplest of researchers. Me. I didn't know anything. I was simply trying to figure it out using my own vocabulary and my own simple logic. That is all I had, along with bundles of energy. Ironically, the same was true for Sperry, the most sophisticated neuroscientist of the era. He had never worked in the human arena, and so we held hands as we plowed forward. In some sense, of course, we all realized split-brain patients were neurologic patients, 
and neurology was a well-formed field with lots of vocabulary. Joe was our guide in the minefield of jargon. Bedside examination of a patient with a stroke or degenerative disease was well established and described. The rich history of early neurologists had taught us a great deal about which part of the brain managed what cognitive functions. The 19th century giants in the field, Paul Broca and John Hewlings Jackson, and their 20th century counterparts, such as the neurosurgeon Wilder Penfield and still more recently Norman Geschwind, all played major roles in developing the medical perspective on how the brain is organized. I can still remember the day when Joe came over to Caltech from White Memorial Hospital to give us a lab talk. He described some of our early findings using the classic terminology of neurology. Although it wasn't gobbledygook, it sounded like that to me, and I remember saying so to Joe and Sperry. Joe is a very open fellow and always progressive. He simply said to me, well, go do better and Sperry nodded in agreement. Over the ensuing years we did, establishing in our first four papers a scientific vocabulary for capturing what was going on in humans who had the two halves of their brains separated. Origin of Split-Brain Research Split-Brain Research in Animals has a rich history. This all occurred before my time in the lab, and it is easy to imagine that there are many versions of the story. The most straightforward begins with Ronald Myers, working on an MD-PhD degree at the University of Chicago in the mid-1950s. His project was to learn how to cut the optic chiasm down the midline in a cat, a formidable assignment. The chiasm was seemingly inaccessible. Located at the base of the brain, it was where some of the nerves from the left eye and right eye cross, allowing information from both eyes to project to each half-brain. If he could successfully cut the chiasm, it would mean visual information coursing up from the right eye would stay lateralized. That is, it would only go to the right half-brain, and information coursing up from the left eye would go only to the left brain. The surgery would have eliminated the normal information mixing at the base of the brain. If such a surgery could be done, then it would mean that one could begin to test how information from one eye came together inside the brain with information from the other. All of this was driven by the working hypothesis then unproven that the neural structure integrating the information was the corpus callosum, the huge nerve tract that interconnects the two half-brains. There were those, such as Carl Ashley, mentioned earlier, who thought that the corpus callosum was merely a structural element that supported the two hemispheres. The experiment Myers designed was meant first to teach a visual problem to one eye of a chiasm-section cat and then to test the other eye. If the information was integrated, then the idea was to test again after cutting the callosum to see if the integration stopped. The prediction was that it would. That would be huge. Myers worked on the procedure and finally perfected what was, at first, an extraordinarily difficult technique. After much practice, it became quite straightforward, even though it doesn't sound all that easy. His original description is telling. The optic chiasma was transected in the mid-sagittal plane through a transbuchal-through-the-mouth approach. In this procedure, the soft palate was incised from its attachment to the hard palate anteriorly to within a half centimeter of its free margin posteriorly. The cut edges were retracted with catgut sutures, creating a diamond-shaped opening. A flap of nasal mucosa was next reflected from the sphenoid bone, and with a dental burr, an oval fenestra one by five millimeters, was made in the bone immediately anterior to the sphenopresphenoidal suture. 
Through this opening in the bone, the dura was carefully exposed and incised, thus revealing the underlying optic chiasma. The chiasma was then sectioned with a fine steel blade under close visual control through a binocular dissecting microscope. A small piece of tantalum foil was inserted between the cut halves of the chiasma so that post-mortem verification of the completeness of section would be possible by gross inspection. After section of the chiasma, the opening in the bone was filled with gel foam soaked in blood to form a barrier between the nasopharynx and cranial cavity. The flap of mucosa was replaced over the gel foam and the incised soft palate reopposed with catgut sutures. Got it? Myers was set to perform his experiment. He found that in the chiasma section cat, the information was integrated, and just as he predicted, after the callosum was sectioned, the integration stopped. This procedure, along with the finding that the corpus callosum transferred information between the two hemispheres, launched a thousand ships. With both surgeries, now each hemisphere could be directly given visual information, and the opposite hemisphere could be tested for its knowledge of the information. With Meyer's chiasm surgery breakthrough in hand, and the logical next step to cut the callosum, interest was developing in what first seemed like a relatively obscure yet confounding finding. Acolytus's patients at the University of Rochester appeared to have no major behavioral or cognitive changes following callosum surgery. As a consequence of this work and Lashley's stance, most people thought that when it came to humans, little would come of this careful new animal work of Myers and Sperry. Of course, one of the beauties of science is that it marches on. As the split-brain story developed and became rich and influential in science, people wanted to know where the idea came from. Was it Myers? Sperry? Both? Others? Did it just slowly happen as information accrued over time? After all, it wasn't until years after Myers did his work that the whole preparation was dubbed split-brain by Sperry, the consummate wordsmith. One account of its origins came from a well-known psychologist, Clifford T. Morgan, who had moved from Wisconsin to Santa Barbara in the early 60s. He had been an instructor at Harvard in the early 40s and no doubt had known Sperry, as they both were associated with Lashley. Morgan was keenly interested in epilepsy and also became a celebrated textbook writer. His first book, Physiological Psychology, published in 1943, was credited for bringing order to the field by systematizing its many facets. Morgan went on to a distinguished career started his own publishing company, his own journals, and his own society. Perhaps he was the model for my own subsequent entrepreneurial efforts to start a journal and a scientific society. I later met Morgan at his office when I arrived for my first stint at the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB, in 1966. He was a warm and generous man who seemed to live in order to hear Dixieland jazz at a local spot, the Timbers, on Sunday nights. In fact, he was so generous that on the spur of the moment one day, he lent me $5,000 to help me buy my first house. Just like that, he wrote out a check at his desk with a simple command, pay it back when you can, and handed it to me. That simple gesture kick-started my domestic life and had a big impact on me. Years later, following his example, I was able to do the same for two of my young research associates. It turns out that the idea for the split brain was spelled out in the second edition of his book in 1950, co-authored with University of Pennsylvania psychologist Elliot Steller. It was stated with no fanfare and made to sound as if it were part of the culture at the time, whereas in fact everybody wanted what the Colossum did, 
and everybody wondered how information was communicated between the hemispheres. Does it remind you of what was going on in the field of genetics? After all, everybody knew there was inheritance, and everybody knew there was DNA before Watson and Crick put it together. Maybe major advances simply accrue. At the same time, and very importantly in my view, somebody has to go out and do something to prove or disprove the talk, not just go on and on about it. There was no question in my mind. Myers and Sperry had gotten their hands dirty and transformed the talk into findings. I met Myers years later at a conference where I was presenting the human split-brain work and he was presenting some of his anatomical work carried out on chimpanzees. I was eager to get to know him because I fully understood his crucial role in the history and development of split-brain research. As a scientist, he certainly had earned the respect of his peers, and the field of brain science was indebted to him. That doesn't mean he was Mr. Nice Guy. After my talk, he went into some kind of rant about how the odd human case didn't mean much of anything, and that it was sort of a bizarre consequence of prior epilepsy, etc. I was stunned and rather speechless but the light bulb slowly was turning on. Turf is king, and I was on his turf, even though I was following up his work in another species. And by that time, our human studies had been peer-reviewed in several refereed journals. I was getting another lesson in the difference between scientists and science. I was also wondering if it was inevitable that all contributors to intellectual property turned out this way. Was there any difference between an artist, a scientist, a bricklayer, would I also turn out that way? Note to self. Dr. Sperry Roger Sperry was a true giant in the field. When I arrived at Caltech, he had recently recovered from a relapse of tuberculosis. His wife, Norma, coordinated the flow of information to him from the lab while he rested and recovered at the sanatorium. At that time, he was involved in at least three major scientific projects. His foundational work in neurobiology, which was revealing that animals were not randomly wired and then shaped by experience, was going strong. He also proposed the bold hypothesis that a chemo-affinity process was in play, a process that guided neurons to grow to a specific destination during development. He had outlined that idea at a conference a few years before, and it served as the basis for Caltech hiring him into a professorship. Sperry had taken on another issue. There was something called psychophysical isomorphism. This was the idea that, for example, if one saw a triangle in the real world, there was a corresponding electrical pattern in the visual brain areas that matched the real-world picture. To test this idea, he inserted little mica plates into the cortex of cats. The mica served as an insulator so that any electrical field potential in the brain, should it exist, would be highly disrupted by the many intervening insulators, thereby preventing the animal from performing a visual perceptual task. Many variations of this experiment were carried out. All the results supported Sperry's belief that the notion of psychophysical isomorphism, parallelism, should be abandoned. It has been. On top of all this, of course, was the exploding research on split-brain animals. Sperry had an army of postdoctoral research assistants working mostly on cats and monkeys. The lab was going full tilt on a variety of issues that dealt mainly with the question, would an animal with its corpus callosum section show transfer of information between the two hemispheres when a perceptual problem was trained to only one hemisphere? 
Any one of these thrusts of research would have been enough to keep most labs busy and noticed in the larger scientific community. Sperry had a style that let things happen. He didn't tell us how to do science. He watched, he kibitzed, he surely guided in ways we didn't fully understand at the time. When he saw something of interest, he knew how to bring it out and enhance it. Put differently, he had a nose for the important versus the routine. More generally, those of us who have spent a life in science, running large labs, wonder how it all keeps going. It most assuredly does not happen by the lab director issuing new directives on a daily basis. Labs can go for years with yeoman-grade science taking place. There can be dry periods, dull periods, non-funded periods. Occasionally, however, something. Sometimes it's serendipity, sometimes it's an actual hypothesized experiment, comes along and works out. Instantly all the mundane days dissolve into glee and excitement. I can remember George Miller, a distinguished psychologist, saying to me, Everybody wants to think science moves forward one clean hypothesis at a time. It moves forward, but usually by stumbling onto something that was unintended. Yet we then quickly tell a story about how he logically proceeded to our findings, which keeps the myth going. Science is great, but scientists are human and prone to storytelling just like everyone else. Nonetheless, keeping an overall lab narrative going is crucial to keeping the research focused and on track. Young scientists come and go. They make their contribution to part of the story, and, in return, they receive the support of the lab director throughout their career. That is the standard arrangement. Students usually continue working on an aspect of the problem they contributed to, and in the long run, that is how major research thrusts develop. Even pedestrian lines of research can grow like this. The successful labs keep an edge by having really smart students and postdocs. Of course, smarts aren't the only ingredient to success. Everybody is smart, but some students are also energetic and practical. A further combination of hard-to-predict characteristics and luck, which is what I had when I hopped into this lab's ongoing dynamics, lead to a successful career in science. Back in my undergraduate summer at Caltech, my meeting with Sperry in his Kirkhoff Hall office was the first of many experiences of meeting the man. His scientific reputation was, as I said, exceptional. From neurodevelopment to animal psychobiology, he was the intellectual leader of his time. People really do have two realities, the everyday person and the metro person, or the private self and the public self, as it's commonly phrased. The public self is your job, your reputation, the model the world builds about you and expects of you. It is usually not you. Let's face it. If Keith Richards lived the life we all think he lives, he would be dead. We can sometimes come to be ruled by the metro self. We live to feed it and do what it tells us to do. This thing that isn't the real you is now running your life, making demands on you. Meanwhile, the real you is trying to get the kids to school, root the gophers out of the rosebed, see your friends for a drink, and talk about whatever. In my life, twenty years of lunches with Leon Festinger, the distinguished social psychologist, demonstrated that someone who had a large metro self could also be exceptionally personal and not let that self intrude or take over his private life. Many people pulled this off. I have always been amused by my many colleagues who claimed they knew Roger Sperry. They knew the metro Sperry. I can say with a fair degree of confidence that nobody knew him like I knew him, both his everyday self and his legendary metro side.
Discovery and Credit. With that glorious day testing Case WJ and revealing that sectioning the colossum in humans had in effect in line with the preceding animal work, the 50-year program of study on human split-brain patients began. It was luck that I was there. Sperry let me flourish, as did Bogan. Others in the lab, who were interested in the results, let me remain in charge of the project. It was a time of good fortune. Our first report was a brief communication to the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Sperry had recently been elected to the Academy, and members in those days had a fast-track way of publishing. We worked like crazy through the winter and spring and got the paper off in August 1962 for an October publishing date. The paper, largely free of medical jargon, was an amazing case history, a succinct summary of all we had done on W.J. The idea that disconnecting the hemispheres of the human brain caused major effects had new life. The era of human split-brain research was born. At the same time, another story was brewing, one that would begin to teach me about the competitive nature of scientists. Norman Geshwind, a young neurologist, and Edith Kaplan, an equally young neuropsychologist, were working at Boston Veterans Administration Hospital. They reported a case of a patient, P.K., who suffered from a glioblastoma multiforme, a tumor that had invaded his left hemisphere. During surgery, presumably to debulk the tumor, he sustained an infarction of the anterior cerebral artery. Footnote. A cerebral infarction, or stroke, occurs when an artery that supplies a part of the brain becomes blocked or leaks. The area of tissue that loses its blood supply dies. As Antonio Damasio recounted years later in Geshwin's obituary, the anterior section of the colossum as well as the medial aspect of the right frontal lobe were destroyed and resulted in a severe disturbance of writing, naming, and praxic control of his left hand. In short, a natural lesion resulting from a stroke as opposed to a surgical section of the corpus callosum, had revealed a disconnection effect. Footnote. A disconnection effect is a neurological disorder caused by the interruption in the transmission of an impulse along a cerebral nerve fiber pathway. They first reported their finding at a December 14, 1961 meeting at the Boston Society of Neurology and Psychiatry. Geshwind and Kaplan had very cleverly interpreted a messy tumor case as a callosum lesion case and carried out some simple tests that suggested they were right. After the patient died a few months later, their diagnosis was confirmed at autopsy. In the spring, another posting of the tumor case was made. In the Newsy Random Reports section of the May 1962 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine was an entry made by Geshwind about these astounding observations. Great care was taken to note that the report came out of the December 14, 1961 meeting. The finding was the buzz in Boston. Geshwind sent a copy of his pre-publication manuscript to Sperry for comment sometime during the early months of 1962, right when we were testing W.J., but before we had published our findings. In the manuscript, he credited Sperry's animal work for his and Kaplan's idea of examining their patient for disconnection effects. Sperry had given a colloquium at Harvard during the fall of 1961 describing some of that work. The broad outlines were already known by then, and it was entirely routine for a researcher to talk about their latest findings. At that time, I was working feverishly back in Pasadena testing W.J. preoperatively. Sperry was not pleased to receive the manuscript a few months later. 
Both research groups were working entirely independently, and he didn't want any potential confusion on that point. After all the years of his and Myers's foundational animal work, and our early and as yet unpublished work on W.J., he didn't want anyone thinking that his human work stemmed from Geshwin's findings. Roger Sperry was a fierce competitor, an athlete who had lettered in three varsity sports in college. During the early part of my training, Sperry got into a huge feud with his own mentor, Paul Weiss, then the most eminent neurobiologist there was, in a heated, specially arranged addendum to a Weiss summary in something called the Neuroscience Research Program, Sperry let him have it. In an autobiographical essay about her illustrious career, another of Weiss's students, Bernice Grafstein, recounted it like this. I was greatly relieved, therefore, that my failure to progress with the problem of motor system regeneration, when I eventually summarized my results for Weiss toward the end of 1964, did not seem to trouble him particularly. He seemed not at all perturbed that my findings might be less consistent with his ideas than with ideas of specific reconnection that were identified with Roger Sperry. In fact, in his summary report of a workshop session at the Neurosciences Research Program at about that time, Weiss claimed to embrace the idea of specificity in regeneration, with reservations only about the necessity of uncovering the detailed mechanisms involved, although he still insisted that these might include functionally coded activity patterns that could serve as messages for selective reception. Sperry, on the other hand, was adamant about disengaging his views from any associated with Weiss. In a statement that he insisted on appending to the same report, Sperry reasserted his own primacy in the development of the idea of selective chemotactic growth of specific fiber pathways and connections governed by an orderly pattern of specific chemical affinities that arise out of embryonic differentiation. Sperry, 1965. He believed that throughout their long association, Weiss had assimilated his, Sperry's, contributions without adequate acknowledgement, and that there had been a build-up in the literature of a complex web of ambiguity, forced terminology, and confusion of issues that was almost impossible to untangle for anyone not intimately acquainted with the underlying history. He was not content that Weiss should just confirm that specificity was operating in the growth and termination of regenerating axons. He believed that he had been deprived of the opportunity that Weiss had promised him to publicly get things out in the open, face the issues, and clarify points of controversy. Clearly, throughout his career, you were either on Sperry's team or the other guy's team. Geshwind was a new rival. It was also true that if someone graduated from Sperry's team and became a competitor, the frequency of critical remarks about that person went up. During my stint at Caltech, it happened every time. One day, when he was criticizing somebody who had left the lab, I realized that after I earned my degree and left the lab, this would probably also happen to me. At the time, however, we were on the same team, and I shrugged the thought aside, with the assumption that it was just part of life in science. Geshwin's complete findings, ultimately published in the journal Neurology in October 1962, served an important role in activating the interest of neurologists in the colossum. It reconnected the clinical literature with a rich earlier history about the importance of the colossum, previously worked out by the German neurologist Hugo Liebmann and the French neurologist Joseph Dergerin around the turn of the 20th century. Years later, Geshwind and I were guests at an international neurology meeting in Kyoto. 
It was a very formal event at a large conference hall. The auditorium was lined with translators madly trying to deal with the multiple languages being used. Norman was on the dais with a group of famous neurologists from around the world. The emperor of Japan was also on the dais with his wife, listening to what must have seemed like gibberish. Each speaker always rose and bowed toward the emperor before going to the podium to speak. Not Norman. When he was called up to speak, he went directly to the podium, said his piece, returned directly to his chair, and sat down. After the session, I asked Norman about it. His failure to conform was noticeable, to say the least. Norman said, Hell no, I am not going to bow to the Emperor of Japan after what he did to our troops. He was indeed an honorable man and a competitor. Over the years, I became a friend of Geshwin's and friends with the entire Boston VA's neuropsychology group. If we ever spoke about the issue of precedence, I don't remember it, and we had dozens of opportunities to do so. Norman was a scholar and a conversationalist like few others. It was always a joy to be in his company. He wrote a paper in 1965 for the journal Brain that, to this day, is a classic review of the neurologic disconnection syndromes. Indeed, the paper launched the field of behavioral neurology in America. While Geshwin's unsolicited manuscript was passed around Caltech, it didn't have much of an impact on our thinking. Sperry said that whenever someone makes a discovery in science, someone else always says, yeah, but so-and-so thought of it before you. In many ways, Sperry was more socially conscious than most. He was always thinking about how his actions might impact the social fabric of scientists. Bogan, in his autobiography, tells of another story that captures this quality. He was discussing an exception to Sperry's leisurely way of getting a manuscript out for publication. Roger did not always delay. One day, when I was visiting the lab, I asked him about the Gorton paper on lateralized olfaction in split-brain patients. He said, we have to send this olfactory paper in immediately. Why? I asked. Because I have just refereed for Neuropsychologia a paper with a similar experiment in rats. People know that with human subjects we can do in a few weeks what would take many months in rats. If we delay, people might think that I got the idea when refereeing the rat paper. Roger seemed to think of everything. I idolized him and hung on his every word, of which there were not very many. I thought him the experimental physiologist of our time. At that time, I was way too callow to comprehend the complexities of sharing credit for an intellectual idea, or that it's a constant battle to take the scientist out of science. Unfortunately, it is now commonplace to have authors suggest to journal editors a list of preferred and a list of non-preferred reviewers. This recent trend has arisen because many people have realized that pettiness has held back many scientific developments. New ideas need a chance to be expressed. This practice, however, under the rationale that it would be a conflict of interest, also disallows people from critically interacting. Should someone really be disqualified to review a paper because they have a different interpretation of the underlying data? That is anathema to the very nature of science. At the time, I just kept doing experiments, and after a while, the whole manuscript exchange episode passed. After all, we had already realized that the disconnection story and the loss of some capacities was not the most profound implication of the split-brain studies. We had begun to understand that we could test each half-brain separately, independent of the influence of the other half. Unlike classic neurology, where you study the absence of mental capacity caused by lesions in particular areas, we could study the presence of mental capacities. It was a whole new ballgame.
establishing the basics. Though the trembling excitement of the discovery would soon pass, we knew we had a research gold mine on our hands that could explain some of the brain's mysteries. The slow, careful exploration of what we had to do to confirm and extend the basic findings needed to begin. Right off the bat, we ran into a complicated problem. Our original paper in PNAS had been mostly about limiting visual information to one hemisphere or the other. This was relatively easy to do. The next phase called for limiting touch information to one side of the brain. This was not easy at all. The visual system in humans and similar mammals is neatly laid out in our body plans. Stare ahead and look at one spot. Both of your eyes are pouring visual information into your brain. Does it enter in an orderly manner? Yes, it does. Each eye sends its information up the optic nerve, and half of the information stays on the same side of the brain, and half of it crosses over and goes to the opposite hemisphere. So, if you are still fixating on that point, everything to the left of the fixated point in either eye is projected solely to your right hemisphere. Thus, each eye is contributing to that experience. It follows, then, that visual information to the right of the fixated point is being solely projected to the left hemisphere. This is true for all of us, including our split-brain patients. This makes it easy to test each hemisphere separately when using visual stimuli. One simply has to present whatever it is you are interested in knowing more about to the right or left visual field. Once again, information from the right visual field goes to the left hemisphere, and information from the left visual field goes to the right hemisphere. Got it? Then you are ready to start thinking about these experiments. Working out the strategy for testing, how a separated hemisphere would deal with touch, or more formally, somatosensory information, is more challenging. How the brain receives information from the body is quite different. This was beautifully laid out by Jersey Rose and Vernon Mountcastle in a chapter of the 1959 Handbook of Neurophysiology, which I read at the time. They were the world's authorities, and their clarity was inspirational. Here is how it works. The left half of your body sends most, but not all, of the information about touch to the right hemisphere. If you're holding an object in the left hand, the touch information related to the object's overall shape, called stereognostic information, goes to your right brain. More basic sensations associated with the mere presence or absence of having been touched, however, go to both hemispheres. Rose and Mountcastle made this abundantly clear by also describing the anatomy that supports this reality. The reverse is true for the right half of the body. Information from the right hand about an object shape goes directly to the left hemisphere, while the less definitive presence or absence of information goes to both hemispheres. Clearly, from the perspective of getting completely lateralized information into only one hemisphere, the visual system was the way to go. Simple, clean, and highly lateralized. The somatosensory system, however, was presenting a challenge. Some forms of the information from the world of touch went to the opposite half-brain, while others went to both half-brains. How were we going to make sense of this? It turned out to be intriguing, thanks in large part to the work that had gone on before us. To solve this puzzle, we first blindfolded the split-brain patient and placed an object in the right hand. Then we asked, what do you have in your hand? The object was always named correctly, no fuss, no muss. The shape information had gone to the left hemisphere. 
Then we place the object in the left hand and ask the same question. This time the shape information went to the right non-speaking hemisphere. The patients were usually not able to name it. Interestingly, however, they would manipulate the object appropriately. This suggested that their right hemisphere knew what the object was, but because it had no speech center, it couldn't name the object. Nor could the shape knowledge of the object be communicated to the left-speaking hemisphere. The fact that the object was manipulated correctly also indicated that both hemispheres had stored information about the nature of objects, sort of a double memory system, leading to redundancy in our brain organization. All of this from one bedside test. Fantastic. One sunny afternoon, I was testing W.J. in his home in Downey. I can still remember how much delight he showed on the following test. I had prepared a set of small wooden blocks that had small tacks protruding from them. I was looking to see if he could tell the difference between a block with one tack and a block with several tacks. I blindfolded him and started presenting the blocks, first to the right hand, which found it easy to do, and then to the left hand. The task was simply to match the blocks. I would first give one of them to him, then take it away and put it in with a group of blocks. He would then pat around on the tabletop and try to find it again among the other blocks. It turned out each hand could do this simple match-to-sample task. What was most interesting, however, was what his left hand, under control of the right brain, would do when presented with the block with one tack. He would pick it up by the tack and twirl it. It seemed as if his right brain was showing off his dexterity with the hand it controlled, even though it could not relay information about what the object actually was. He was also chuckling to himself while he was doing this. It seemed as if his right hemisphere was an independent personality enjoying the moment. It was one of my first realizations in these early days that there were two minds present at all times. I remember asking W.J., Why are you laughing? He replied, I don't know. Something in my left hand, I guess. What was puzzling, however, was the fact that sometimes W.J. did name an object held in the left hand correctly. How was that happening? How could that work? It took months before I finally figured out what now appears to be an obvious answer. As Sparrow used to say, nothing is simpler than yesterday's solutions. The key was to remember those neural pathways and the double representation that Rose and Mountcastle had written about. Some of the fibers from the somatosensory system do not cross over to the opposite half-brain. They climb up ipsilaterally, that is, to the half-brain along the same side as the point of stimulation. It was unclear, however, what these fibers were doing. Finally, I hit upon the experiment that revealed the answer. I limited the number of objects to be identified to two, a plastic triangle or a plastic ball. All W.J. had to do while blindfolded was say which one I had placed in his left hand. After a few trials, W.J. began guessing correctly on every test trial. How was he doing it? Imagine you are given such a task, but are required to wear a thick leather garden glove. The instant recognition of the nature of the object would be gone due to the muffled information you would be getting through the glove, and you would have no immediate stereognostic information. How could you figure it out? You would quickly learn to find an edge on the object and press hard on it. Presence or absence of information is the kind of minimal signal those ipsilateral pathways can transmit. In a split-brain patient, 
Without any shape information coming in from the right hemisphere, the left speaking brain would quickly learn, I feel an edge or I don't feel an edge, and then conclude, if an edge, it must be a triangle. If I don't feel anything, then it must be a ball. That was exactly what W.J. was doing. He would manipulate the object until his thumb could press down hard on an edge. That became the cue that initiated the whole cascade of events I just described. This was one of the first realizations that split-brain patients use external self-cueing to reintegrate some of their disconnected information. By self-cueing, I mean a behavior that is induced by one hemisphere and perceived, through one or more of the senses, by the other hemisphere. This, in turn, allows that other hemisphere to initiate an appropriate response. It is startling when you first see it. This seemingly simple observation points up a deep problem for those of us trying to figure out how the brain works. As will become more apparent later on, many researchers consider the brain to be made up of dozens, if not thousands, of modules. A module is a local, specialized neuron network that can perform unique functions and can adapt to or evolve to external demands. Modules work independently, yet in some kind of coordinated way, to produce unitary behavior. Think of a city with hundreds of different independent businesses. Taken together, however, they perform all that needs to get done for a city to operate and appear to be a unified whole. How all the modules are coordinated is the question. Over the years, it has become apparent to me that one way the modules come to produce unity is by cueing each other, usually outside the realm of conscious awareness. The self-cueing seen in a disconnected speaking hemisphere is omnipresent, and we have observed many different strategies. In this case, primitive touch cues are picked up, and then that information is intertwined with the limited decision set of two possible items to render a correct answer. This is but one strategy, but I've gotten ahead of myself.